0: There simply can be no topic of more significance today than how food shapes our lives and is an integral part of who we are. Indeed, we are literally what we eat, and we live in a world moulded and dominated by food. Who can forget in the early days of COVID-19 lockdown the pathetic sight of people scrambling for the last bag of pasta and the aisles of empty shelves where once was your favourite fruit and veg? Caroline Steele is a leading thinker on food and cities, and her first book, Hungry City, received international acclaim, establishing her as an influential voice in academia, industry, and the arts. Her TED talk, How Food Shapes Our Cities, has been downloaded over one and a quarter million times. We first spoke to Carolyn in her London flat nearly a year ago, and today I'm delighted to welcome her back to chat about her stunning new book, Zootopia, How Food Can Save the World. Carolyn asked possibly the biggest question of all, what makes a good life? A question most of us would say we haven't had time to answer. That is, of course, until now, when time for many of us is pretty much all we have. Zootopia is Greek for food place, and in her deeply researched and wide-ranging book, Carolyn assesses why we fail to value food, which in turn has led us to create climate change, mass extinction, deforestation, soil erosion, water depletion, declining fish stocks, pollution, antibiotic resistance, diet-related disease, and dare I say it, COVID-19. If there ever was a time to build a fairer, more resilient society, now is probably the best time to start so that we can all lead happier and healthier lives. I'm Steve Lazarus, and this is Your London Legacy. Before we meet this week's wonderful guest, here's a little something for you. If you're a fan of the show and would like to get involved and support us at Your London Legacy and help us keep producing amazing content just for you, you can get involved over on our Patreon page. We take every penny and we'll reinvest it back into the show. If you want to get involved and get hold of some really cool benefits or have us create your very own London Legacy episode or maybe meet up with us and other London Legacy lovers in London, you can do that too over at www.patreon.com forward slash yourlondonlegacy. Okay, let's get on with the show. Well, I am delighted once again. I haven't had a repeat guest. Yes, so I've just re- no, I have actually. I have my my wife, but that was because of uh, COVID. <laughs> <laughs> that was because of COVID, COVID lockdown. But this is this is a new repeat guest, if I can put it that way. And it's it's lovely to have back on the podcast, Caroline. Is it Caroline? Is not Caroline? Carolyn Steele. Hi, Carolyn. How are you doing?
1: Very well indeed. Thank you, and lovely. I'm very honoured to be your first repeat guest.
0: <laughs> yeah you, yeah well not everybody writes two books in um i don't know how long it took between between the books i think your first book Hungry city was
1: 12 years 12 yeah, years is that 12 all? years yeah,
0: yeah. That's all. <laughs>
1: Okay,
0: it was a quick one <laughs> it was a quick one i don't want to wait yeah, another 12 yeah. years to get you on for the third time <laughs>
1: Well, there may not be a third time. I mean, I'm one of these people, I don't write books for the sake of it. You know, I write them because, irritatingly, I have something that just has to be said. So it really is that way round. I'm not a serial producer of books. I'm not a battery book writer.
0: No, no. uh, And that comes across loud and clear from the, uh, the content and the depth of research that you have clearly done. In both your books, which we will um, revisit very shortly, but just for the listeners benefit, just so they know, I typically do all my interviews as we were just discussing off air before we went live face to face, person to person, flesh to flesh over a cup of coffee and and maybe a snack or two, you know, food, which is, uh, you know, the, the, the stuff of life, isn't it? That makes the world go around. Which makes life all the more enjoyable, and the and the interview is much more pleasant and amiable as well. But because this horrible COVID nineteen is uh, interloped and causes all sorts of hassle, we're having to do this over this. I'll give the guys a shout out, Squadcast, which is this new software designed for podcasters, and uh, we can see each other, which is nice. I think the sound recording levels are good, and we finally got it to work, which is excellent. Hopefully, the drilling has stopped next door. Hopefully, the kids' next-door neighbors will stop screaming for just just long <laughs> enough to do this recording. We can, we can have a good chat. But for those of you who don't recall the last podcast, and by the way, your last podcast, we, we last chatted. Do you, know, do you remember when that was? I don't suppose you do.
1: Every I, the steel theory of time is that everything's always twice as long ago as you think <laughs> so it feels like a year ago so i'm assuming it's two years ago
0: no you're actually right it was a year ago it was the th- <laughs> th- third well it was it was published on the third of june last year so we're getting up we're getting on for a year aren't we
1: oh right well that's that's what i call the covid effect it just turns time to liquid basically doesn't it? it does
0: Everything turns to mush, our brains, everything indeed, yeah. But a year ago, it's it's quite bizarre. Where does time go? So let's just recap on a little bit of your background, because obviously you've got this fascination for food and how we feed ourselves and how cities feed themselves and the history, and, I mean, your first book, Hungry City, it was your first book, wasn't it, Hungry City, um, How Food Shapes Our Lives, I suppose was more about, would you say it was more about the history of how we fed ourselves through the ages, with a view to looking forward as well.
1: Well, there's a lot of history in both the books. I mean, I would say he, the first book was asking the question, "How do you feed a city?" And you know, in a sense, what history shows you is that it's it's never been easy. You know, we've just hidden how difficult it is, or, or kind of, you know, found a fit, ever more efficient and invisible ways of doing it. But it's still a very, very hard thing. To, you know, for example, for a city like London to produce, transport, buy and sell, you know, chill, cook, eat and dispose of enough food for 30 million people. You know, that's not a trivial thing. So although there is a lot of history in it, I was actually using that to illustrate. I mean, I love history because it's very clear. It's a very clear way of understanding phenomena, because you can look at the beginning, middle and end of things, you know, you can look at the Roman Empire and sort of see how it evolved, and how Rome sort of worked out how to feed itself, and then how it all went horribly pear shaped at the end. You know, so I think in the present time, we don't know how this ends. <laughs> we can see it starting to go pear shaped, but we don't know what the future is yet. So we got
0: a damn good insight, didn't we into how it could potentially end. And we uh, went to visit our Tesco's and Waitrose and saw empty shirt. And I don't just mean loo roll.
1: <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No, I mean, I've I mean, I, i obviously been doing a lot of webinars and Zoominars and basically online lectures through the lockdown. And I just use a photograph of my local Waitrose, you know, where I went along with the other kind of loo roll seeking <laughs> uh, good folk of North London. And um, no, I mean, it was deeply shocking. And I think, you know, for me, I was possibly less shocked than most people because, I know how fragile the food system is, but it certainly was shocking even to me how, how the ships, the, you know, the, the the shelves were completely stripped bare. And, you know, you had young men kind of wrestling grannies to the floor for the last packet of pasta and all this kind of stuff, you know. I don't think it showed us in our best light, shall we put it that way. And, yes, it was a massive wake-up call. And I think, you know, for a lot of people who've never really thought about the food system before, it was maybe the first time that they looked at it and thought, oh, you know, this this is fragile.
0: Do you think people thought there was a, a food shortage per se in other words there wasn't enough production or did they think there's a logistical problem getting food from the warehouse or did they just did they just not give a monkey's quite frankly
1: I think the thinking went down into the reptile brain frankly I don't think they were kind of um, conceptualizing which part of the supply chain had screwed up I think they were just kind of going panicky and going give me that last tin of baked beans and that's really interesting I mean people behave really, really appallingly. And that was almost the most interesting thing about it to me, was the fact that, you know, I mean, there's this famous saying that we're only ever three meals from anarchy, you know, and I think we kind of saw that right then. You know, I'm not kidding about the young men wrestling grannies to the ground for the last kid of kind of beans, you know. So I think, you know, obviously, a lot was then written about why the system failed, And obviously, as probably people now realise, it's because we are fed on what is known as a just-in-time system, which is basically maximum efficiency. I mean, I always have to do little air inverted commas when I use the word efficiency because so much in our lives is based around this, this notion, which is actually called creating fragility would be another word for efficiency because there's no slack in the system, you know, and it's just, it's cheaper to do it that way by eradicating the human and eradicating all the sort of the, you know, the potential for storage and basically letting an algorithm on the, the supermarket till say, you know, somebody bought a can of tomatoes and that alerts the depot that alerts the farm in Italy that says, you know, another can of tomatoes needed, please. And it's all absolutely to the wire. And by the way, uh, just out of interest, I was just saying how history... Teaches us things. Rome, ancient Rome, was also fed on a just-in-time system. This wasn't by choice, by the way. <laughs> it's just because they never—they were always on the point of running out of food. So, you know, it's quite interesting that we've chosen to do this when there's absolutely no need to do it, uh, purely because we expect food to be cheap. Um, and one of the things I argue in the new book is that there is no such thing as cheap food. And indeed, I should probably explain what the new book is about, shouldn't I?
0: Yeah, no, I was going to say, I mean, just before we dive into that, your background is in architecture, isn't it? But architecture fed, <laughs> fed, fed into your passion for understanding how within architecture and urban environments, we create arrangements whereby we can all be fed. Where did your interest come from in, in the food scenario and how we feed ourselves?
1: Well, I mean, as you say, I've always been interested in food. You know, I used to read books about food history and so on. Obviously, I I like eating. I know this is a podcast, but, you know, I think anyone who looks at me can see that I enjoy my food. And, um, you know, but the honest answer is I don't really know. But but the only explanation I've come up with post facto, uh, whether or not it's the case, is that my grandparents had a hotel um, in Bournemouth called the Hotel Miramar. And I used to spend all of my holidays there and every other weekend. I mean it was just a you know kiddie paradise, basically because you know there's this big building with you know lots of guests in one bit you know where you had to be on your best behavior and have your hair combed before you were allowed out into it, and so on and then there was the back bit where we lived, uh the family lived where Basically, it was faulty towers, you know, kind of things were falling apart the whole time. There was grease dripping down walls, torn up lino, people shouting, you know, just constant crises going on. And as a child, I remember very much sort of being drawn to that contrast between the backstage world, if you like, and the front of house. And the privileged position of being able to go through the service door, basically, when you literally went in the space of, you know, the thickness of a door. From one world to another, and that to me was always very magical. And in fact, I, uh, you know, I've, I've come to think—I mean, uh, as I say, maybe post-rationalisation—but you know, that my twin interests in architecture and food come from that same place, which is that you know that door has incredible magical power about it because to have the power to move through it at will is privileged. You know, you you get to see the illusion and you get to see the the backstage that's making it possible. And for me, I guess food is the ultimate backstage. But of course, then it also becomes front of house, you know, so the relationship between, shall we say, the king eating a magnificent feast with a peacock with feathers sticking out of its head and, you know, kind of boars with apples in their mouths and hundreds of servants all making it look magnificent. And then the effort that it takes to create that, Behind the scenes and that relationship to me, you know in a way, all of life is there, all of urban civilization is there, all of hierarchies are there, you know the sort of the whole the richness of what life is, and you know in a way what what the dynamic is that sort of powers society because we all want to be the king, but actually most of us are the ones serving the king kind of thing and so we live in an unequal society. Although you know, my my image of a good society is one in which we all eat well and we all eat together. So there's a kind of contradiction in there, within which I think lies, you know, a, a vast amount that's worth exploring.
0: Well, so just what is the premise of your new book, Utopias? Call How Food Can Save the World, and it's broken down into fascinating chunks because I, I think people. We all, as you say, you love food. I love food. I don't know people. I don't know anyone who, who really doesn't love food.
1: I think some supermodels have a few issues, but anyway.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I bet they still love it, really secretly.
1: I think if if there was a pill you could invent that meant you could eat and drink as much as you like and look like Twiggy, then there would be no unhappiness left in the world. Yeah, I
0: although I, th- I think we, I think we're probably moving away from that a little bit as well, e- e- even today. But what is fascinating is. People love food, and people like to talk about eating food, and love to go to restaurants, and like me, they love watching Master Chef and creating food. But there's a big difference to actually understanding where food comes from, and as you said in your first book, how it how it shapes our lives. There's a there's a big difference, and in your new book, which which I love, you break it down into different sort of sections. You know how it affects our body, how it affects the philosophy of food, the, the psychology of food, food in society, the economics of food, geology, you know, how we spray with all this crap that kills us and all this sort of stuff. And yet it's such a complex area to bring all together. It just affects every single facet of our lives.
1: It does. So, so the first book that I wrote, Hungry City, How Food Shapes Our Lives, basically that was the book in which I followed the journey of food through the city and, you know, as I said, from the kind of, you know, where it's made to the road, the market, the kitchen, the table, the waste dump and back again. And it was through the writing of that book, which took seven years, by the way. So I'm, um, you know, as I say, I don't, I don't churn these things out like a machine at all. But, you know, it's a very, very, very big subject. What I learned from that was that food shapes our lives in multiple ways. You know some of which we're aware of, so you know if I look down and I try to do my trousers up, I know that food is shaping my body, for example, as you rightly said, you know what we're all missing under lockdown is getting around a table and and sharing food. But what we might be slightly less aware of is the fact that the cities that we live in have been shaped by food. you know our economics have been shaped by food, our politics, our daily habits are shaped by food, you know even our you know the way we think is shaped by food, so and I often say to people, you know, sort of the food you eat is the future you, because literally we are made of the, the meals we've eaten in the past, down to the last atom, by the way. You know, so so it's really, really powerful. And the last chapter of that book, I called Cytopia, I made this word up, um, and I should explain to people probably. Well, I probably did last time we spoke, but in case people haven't heard. Yeah,
0: give us a recap.
1: Yes, it's called Cytopia and it's from the Greek word sitos, S-I-T-O-S for food, and topos for place. Um, and the reason I invented this word was that I was researching utopia, which can either mean a good place or no place, From so that U in utopia is either from the Greek word for good or the Greek word for no. Nee. And I remember thinking, well, utopia is our greatest tradition of thinking in a multidisciplinary way about how we should live, but it can't exist because it aims at, uh, you know, the ideal, therefore it can't exist. And I remember finding this really depressing um, and and thinking we desperately need, uh, you know, a multidisciplinary way about thinking about how we should live. I mean, I should say, you know, as an architect, the question of how we should live is your question you know, as an architect, when you're building buildings, you're trying to sort of create spaces and environments in which people can lead good lives. That's what you're trying to do. And, you know, I just thought, well, by now i had been working on the book for, you know, seven years, as I said, and i would realized that food shapes everything, you know, and I thought, well, we live in a world shaped by food. So maybe if we take food and use it as a kind of, you know, a way of seeing like a tool, then we could use food as a way to kind of think about life in a multidisciplinary connected way. So I invented this word, Zootopia, as a kind of practical food-based alternative to utopia, because we already live in a Zootopia, we just live in a bad one because we don't value the thing that shapes it, i.e. food, because we expect food to be cheap. And of course, there is no such thing as cheap food.
0: Well, it's cheap from a, from a monetary point of view. It's cheap.
1: Well, yeah, no, the, exactly. So we've created the illusion of cheap food. So that's absolutely right. We pay less for food now than we ever have done in history. But we've done it by creating an illusion. So we've externalised its true costs. And those are everything from climate change to mass extinction to water pollution to diet related disease, you know, it goes on and on and on. In fact, we're destroying ourselves and our planet because we expect food to be cheap and there is no such thing. And I often say to people, you know, if you think about what food is, you know, food is living things that we kill so that we can live. You know, and if you put it, and people find that quite shocking. They go, and They go, well, plants, you know, what about plants? Well, plants are living things, you know, and uh, we kill them so we can live, you know. So that tells you that food is life you know it's both a metaphor for life but it's also life and that to cheapen food is to cheapen life so our problems i'm arguing all come from the fact that we we've got our value system completely upside down because we expect the most important thing in our lives which is food to be cheap and so you know hungry city came out in 2008 and i started going around the world and kind of you know meeting lots of people having wonderful conversations like this one and of course the irritating thing about writing a book is that, you know, you spend sort of anything up to a decade trying to make it completely perfect and cram all the ideas in there and tie it all up with a bow and you stick it out in the world and literally the first conversation you have after it's gone to the printers, somebody says something, you think, Ah, I want to put that in the book, but I can't <laughs> Or you have a brilliant idea and oh yeah, too late. So your thinking goes on. And about two years after Hungry City came out, uh, it was actually being published in Dutch. And I was in the Netherlands having a series of amazing conversations with brilliant journalists there, you know, who knew their stuff, really knew their stuff. So it was a great conversation. And they were making me say things in a way that I hadn't said it before. And I started taking notes from the conversations I was having in real time. And, you know, it felt like there'd been a cloud of ideas gathering above my head until that point. And in one of those conversations in Amsterdam, it was like that cloud of ideas started raining. And I knew in that moment I was going to have to write another book that was actually going to have to say, OK, what is utopia? What is food place? You know, how do we use food to make a better world? And that was the idea behind the book. And the structure actually came from a drawing I did um, around about that time, actually, when I was trying to, yes, it's a bit like the frontispiece, piece, which an artist friend of mine did a kind of posh version of,
0: which is abs- absolutely this magnificent. By the way, who, who is the artist?
1: She's called Miriam Escafet, and uh, she's an incredible artist. She actually won the um, BP Portrait Award a couple of years ago for an amazing portrait of her mother. I um, mean, she paints in an old-fashioned way, so she mostly uses oils, and she paints like Vermeer, you know, like the old masters using lots and lots and lots of layers.
0: Yeah, yeah, it looks like a master. When I first saw it in the book, I thought that's a master, an old master, but as I was reading on, I, th- I, I couldn't quite un- believe that it was by a contemporary artist. It's wonderful.
1: Yeah, so I'm, I'm actually going to show you the drawing. Um, obviously, listeners can't can't hear it, but that, that doesn't matter because it will it'll make me explain it to you properly. Um in two thousand and eleven it 's basically I was trying to work out where food sits in our lives. looks like the solar system yeah no exactly exactly right and that's that's a brilliant way of putting it so it's like um I drew a plate of food I began with that, then I drew a plate uh, a table around the, the the plate of food, then people around the table, and I started drawing arrows, you no know, sharing, connecting blah blah blah. And then I drew a cook figure, you know, love, nurturing and so on. Gratitude Maybe coming the other way if you're lucky. You know, so that became the space of the home. You know, where does the food actually come from? Well, you know, the cook figure who may be a mother or a father or just a a cook, anyone who cooks your food, um, even if it's you. You know, some sort of market, you know, whether it's a supermarket or a market, some trading place. Um, The markets. So, again, more arrows, you know, trust, knowledge, economy where does the market sit in the city? Where does the city sit in the countryside? Where does the countryside sit in nature? Where does nature sit in the universe? So that was kind of radiating scales going out from a plate of food to the universe. And I did this-
0: so it really is from the from the micro to the to the macro to the bigger picture at radiating outwards.
1: Exactly. So I'm basically saying that plate of food in front of you, whatever it is, the whole world is in that plate of food. That's the idea. And then, so it's seven radiating scales out from food to the body, the home, society, city and country, nature and time. So literally, the structure of the book is a section. This is very architecty, by the way. This is how I work is a section through that drawing.
0: Yes, yeah, rippling out.
1: Rippling out, exactly. It's like rings rippling out from a pebble you've dropped in a pond, and the pebble is food. So that's exactly how it works. So this made the book very difficult to write, because every chapter overlaps every other chapter. They will sit inside one another. So the first chapter wanted to be the whole book, because that was about food, you know, and they all wanted to be each other. But of course, that's the perfect thing, because what I've discovered is that food is the perfect systems thinking medium. You know, I mean, people, systems think, I mean, I've never studied systems thinking in my life. You know, I haven't picked up a single book that's got the word systems on the cover, but systems thinkers keep telling me, I think like a systems thinker, because when you think through food, you have to, there is no choice, because everything is joined to everything else. So that, that was the structure of the book. So at each scale of that drawing, if you like, which then became the book, I asked the question, How can we use the lens of food to ask what is a good life? So food tells you both what is a good life, um, because, as I said earlier, it, it both is life and it's a metaphor for life that is so close to life, you may as well call it life. So it's a brilliant, brilliant tool for asking really big questions and it also tells you that if we expect food to be cheap, we've got our value system upside down. <laughs> so, you know, then there's this very, very big sort of thought experiment you can do, which is to say, what would the world look like if we internalise the true cost of food, i.e. if we actually value food again? And it's revolutionary. It's a revolutionary idea.
0: Let's take a very quick break just to remind you, if you love the show and would like to get involved, grab some cool stuff, get shout-outs on the show, have us create your very own London Legacy show, or you meet up with us in London for a coffee or something stronger, just head over to www.patreon.com forward slash your London Legacy. Okay, let's carry on with the show. So huge question, I mean it's a huge topic, how do you get people to change their views on the value of food per se, rather than as you say, clicking on Deliveroo, getting your chicken biryani delivered to your, to your door? within an hour and if it's not there within an hour you're pissed off and you you want your temp tempi off your delivery charge from the person who's you know working tough and tape near an hour <laughs> you know how, how how do you get people to appreciate if you want quality good healthy food produced in a sustainable way you've got to pay for it
1: i mean there are two answers to that well there are many answers to that question but two things that immediately spring to mind one is covid's already doing it this is deeply ironic But actually, people have been stuck at home. You know, they've got nothing to do all day, or very little, a lot of them. You know, they've got the kids at home as well. They've got more time than they've had probably since in their entire working lives. What are they doing? They're baking, they're pickling, they're roasting, they're, you know, growing their own. I mean, there's been an absolute resurgence in people discovering the fun and the joy of cooking for themselves. So, you know, people like me who've been banging on for what feels like centuries – Technically, I almost have indeed you know appreciating the the joy that taking time for things like cooking and growing and not just those things but things like that is the basis of a low carbon good life, which of course is the good life that we've got to get to, in other words, you're just you're not just mindlessly consuming you know you're too busy to cook because you're too busy watching Netflix, so that's two consumptions competing for your time you could do neither of those. You could just be producing something. You could be, I mean, funnily enough, literally, I've just spent the whole afternoon in my, what I call my garden. It's actually just a flat bit of roof on the way up to my very, very central London flat. But, you know, I've been there all afternoon. I've been trimming my herbs. I've been sweeping the eggs of some mystery bug that seems to have decided to start living in my fig tree. I've been repotting chives and oregano and, you know, getting my sweet peas to grow up canes and stuff. And I suddenly looked at my watch and thought, <laughs> you know, I'm supposed to be talking to Steve in 15 minutes and kind of ran up the stairs. So...
0: Ah, oh, that's why you're late. well, I'll, I'll allow you to be late <laughs> for that reason. No, not not, not you're out... <laughs> Instead of ordering something.
1: The thing is, you know, I mean, what I find, you know, fair enough. But I mean, what I find really interesting is that, you know, a lot of the, I mean, this is why I'm such a fan of E.F. Schumacher, who wrote, you know, arguably the most important book anyone's written in the last 50 years, in my view, which is Small is Beautiful. I don't know whether your readers are familiar with this book, but I mean, what Schumacher did, Small is Beautiful. And what he said in this book is that he... He said the problem with capitalism is that it separates out, you know, producing and consuming into two different activities as if there's only producers and consumers. But what it fails to recognise is that all of us are both producers and consumers. So what capitalism does is it shrinks down the production side to make it all more efficient, back to this idea of efficiency. The ideal cost of labour in a capital, capitalist society is zero, because you're trying to reduce costs. Okay, so that's your delivery, you know, slave, as I call them, you know, slave with a kind of peppermint, peppermint green box on their back, all things, you know. And then on the other hand, consumption is meant to be our reward, you know, but what, and then Schumacher's killer point. He said, man the producer, they, that's how they talk back in 1970. Man the producer and man the consumer is the same person. So it makes no sense that you give him or her a miserable working environment on the basis that they can reward themselves later by, you know, consuming something. Why not just make work wonderful? You know, so I think this idea of reforming work, and by the way, this is even more important in the age of robotization which we're facing at the moment, and which indeed COVID is also problematizing very rapidly. Why not recognise that we all can have a happier life By having good work, not horrible work that we're paid terrible wages for, you know, that we scrape by on, but good work. And then actually we have to consume less because we got our pleasure from producing. So it's a brilliant, brilliant kind of win-win sort of vision of an economy. I mean, going back to what I was saying earlier on about, you know, everyone wanting to be the king and nobody wanting to be the slave. I mean, what I found really interesting about fast food is that the illusion it gives is that we are all kings. Oh, I'm far too busy and important to think about what I'm going to eat. I'm just going to lie on my sofa watching normal people, and I'm going to kind of decide at one in the morning whether I want a Thai curry or an Indian curry. You know, this is a sort of vision of a good life. But actually, it's not a good life because, again, and this is where I suppose my idea of the good which, by the way, is not my idea, it's just coming from, you know, sort of ultimately, I suppose, from Greek philosophers like Aristotle, is that nothing is good if it makes somebody else's life bad or if it makes something else bad. The only good life is a good life where it has, there are no externalities. So again, it's not a good life if somebody else is being treated like a slave so you can live like a king. That can't be a good life.
0: But cheap food must have, must have, produce good life for some people it must have been a because it's enabled people who otherwise wouldn't have been able to afford i don't know a three-course meal or you know food on their plates on a regular basis to go to the supermarkets it's enabled them to go out and buy food on a regular basis and to sustain their families albeit not in a necessarily healthy way and probably in a very unhealthy way but at least in, it enables them to do a week, week, weekly shop
1: well exactly so so that we don't count the cost. I mean, this is the problem. I mean, I find it really interesting that, you know, the. I mean, let's not go into how the UK government is dealing with COVID. But, you know, we're very, very susceptible to COVID in the West, particularly in countries like the UK, particularly BAME. I mean, the, the, you know, there's various reasons for this that we don't know yet. But what we do know is that underlying health conditions are a big part of whether or not you're Likely to die from COVID. What causes those underlying health conditions? They're almost all diet-related disease. So we're, we're we're making ourselves sick by the way we eat. Now, I mean that is not that is not a good life on any level, you know. And I mean, I'm by no means a health freak, but I mean, I I don't eat processed food ever. I mean, literally, I just never eat it. It's not because I'm prissy or anything. It's just that I prefer nourishing, healthy food made by me most of the time, you know. And and of course, I completely understand. This is a really important point that you raise. I am not saying that we should make food more expensive, and therefore, you know, the poor people just, you know, can't afford to eat. No, I'm saying that a good society is one in which everybody can afford to eat well, and indeed does eat well, has the opportunity to eat well. What does that mean? Well, it means you can't have a society that's as unequal as ours is. You can't have a society where some people, you know, have five properties and indeed... You know, their parents have a landed estate with a castle and a farm where they can choose to go and self isolate even though sorry, let's not go there.
0: Um <laughs> No I no not you're there. talking about <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, no no indeed indeed. <laughs> but um you know, and other people basically are going to food banks. You know, this is the fifth largest economy in the world. This is absolutely disgusting. It's despicable. And so if you go from as I say, the this is why why I keep saying you have to turn the value, you know, hourglass on its head. The question is not How are we going to feed the world? Oh, we've got lots of poor people. Let's have food banks, which is our current policy, by the way, which is just awful. You have to turn it on its head and say, we want a society in which everybody can afford to eat well, because by the way, if you eat well, you live well. And not only can afford it, but has the opportunity to do it. And the opportunity is a really huge thing because that's about education, that's about access, that's about, you know, time, it's about space, it's about everything. That's why, as I say, it's revolutionary, a revolutionary idea, but a very easy one to understand then you say, well, of course we can't have people, you know, being paid, you know, £7.50 an hour to clean our drains out. <laughs> you know, we cannot afford to have a society because there's no way those people are going to be able to afford to eat well, which means live well. So you say, OK, you know, there's a minimum wage that's a real minimum wage. You know, call it £25 an hour. Let's get real. And let's not design cities. I mean, we you know it very quickly, and I mean, what I found really interesting about the structure that I imposed on myself by mistake, as it were, by drawing, doing a drawing before the book came, you know, doing a draw a book based on a drawing, is that, the, you know, you can see physically how every piece of, you know, the, the puzzle that you try to address immediately affects all the other pieces. So, for example, very, very rapidly, you see, it's not just a question of what people are, and it's a question of where they live. You know, do they have access to countryside if they want to grow their own food? Do they have the possibility of working from home, again, another really fascinating outcome of lockdown is many people are actually going, oh, I quite like working from home. You know, why was I doing, you know, spending £5,000 a year and, you know, thousands of hours of my time standing up right on a crowded sardine can called the train that never
0: arrived on time. Especially when you've got things like Squadcast and the ubiquitous Zoom and other sort of uh, apps that we have now.
1: Indeed, indeed. So I was one of those people who refused to do Skype before lockdown because I hated it so much. And, you know, now I, I do Pilates on it. I see my friends on it. I, I mean, I, do, I live on it, literally. And it's actually fine. I mean, I'm not saying let's do away with human contact at all, quite the reverse. But I am saying that one of the things that COVID is teaching us is that we can afford to rebalance, I mean, you know, in in my terms, the urban-rural relationship, which is the key relationship in every civilization, so between the city and the countryside. Historically, it was much more balanced than it is now, and it became very unbalanced due to industrialization. I mean, this is, again, a long conversation. but, But just to say that, you know, as... I mean, again, I love Aristotle's term. Aristotle calls humans political animals, and he uses this term... To describe a kind of duality, because if you think about it, uh, being political means that we have to live in society. You know, we have to be among other humans to thrive. But being an animal means that you also need nature. So, again, as an architect, my question then would be okay, well, what does an ideal dwelling space look like for a political animal? And the answer is well, you want the city and the countryside. You know, you want both. And oh, surprise, surprise, rich people through history have always had both. 'cause they always had the place in town and the place in the country. Well that's fine. But what about the rest of us? Who can barely afford one dwelling, you know? So then it becomes a design issue. You know, at the scale of the city and the country. How do you design a landscape so that everybody, or as many people as possible, have access to both the city and the country, which we all want. And again, COVID is you know, demonstrating this so clearly, you know, the minute people are allowed out of their houses they dash off into the country you know we've got a deep deep need for nature it brings us full circle because utopians through history have tried to do this that is a huge theme in utopia is how you limit the size of urban growth basically so people still have access to the countryside so Plato and Aristotle do it Thomas More does it Ebenezer Howard does it with the Garden City so that that I find really interesting so thinking through food gets you to the same place
0: Conceptually, the idea is absolutely wonderful. It it, it sounds utopian. It sounds utopian. It, it sounds yeah. perfect. Perfect. And you said Aristotle said we're all political people, uh and politics politics rules the way we live to to for better or for worse. And politics and the food market is is governed by the food. I mean, the food lobby. Is is enormous. I mean, look at look at the the food lobby in America and and in France, for example. You know, they have to sneeze and they're they're downing tools and they're parking their tractors on the fields and they're not doing any work. And you know, it's bigger it's bigger than the gun lobby in America. Where do you start to 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 drive a little wedge in here to create a chink of light? I mean, COVID, nobody's talking about food from COVID. We're talking about illness and cure and overcoming disease and those sort of things and lockdown. In
1: my world, they're all talking about it. By the way. (laughs) In my Twitter channels, it's, it's all we talk about. But um, well, not all we talk about. We talk about other stuff too. But but no, I mean, where really... do you guys? Where do guys
0: who talk about it twenty four seven? Where Where do you guys get in to 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 drive a wedge here and create create some some traction?
1: It's a really important question. I mean, you know, and obviously one that I I exercise a lot of you know my brain energy trying to sort of think about. I mean, basically, I mean, again, going back to the history thing for a minute. One of the things that's really interesting you discover when you look at, you know, cities historically is that city authorities always took responsibility for the food supply because they had to. You know, feeding people was the most important thing that city authorities did. And of course, by city authorities, I'm pretty much talking about authorities, you know, because that's where power tended to reside. What happened with industrialization? Is the and by the way they hated it. I mean, you know, there is a reason why you know the Paris, you know, Louis the Sixteenth got his head chopped off, and it's all to do with food. It's not all. I mean, okay, food is a big part of it. Put it that way.
0: Yeah, but, but starving, helps, doesn't it?
1: <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. So I mean, basically, he was he was held responsible for feeding the people. He was actually known as the baker of last resort. I mean, again, this is a bit of a complicated story, but you know, it's to do with the different geography of Paris and London. So Paris is on the Seine which is not navigable by ocean going vessels london is on the Thames which is parisian kings had to be responsible for gathering in grain from the local hinterland which was very difficult to do and you know basically never really worked very well paris was always running short of food london never ran short of food because it could just import it from wherever it wanted hence the free trade attitude hence i often say brexit although let's not go there either. But this idea of, oh, you know, we're of the the world, we can always get our food in from somewhere. So politicians, I mean, feeding people is a really, really difficult thing to do. Food systems are really difficult to control. People hate being told what to eat. I mean, it was always the biggest nightmare that leaders had. So when the food industries, you know, with industrialisation, when trains started to make it possible to transport food over long distances rapidly, and cities began to expand, and, you know, basically. You know, things like meat packing in the United States, you know, which is the origin of cheap meat because the trains were allowed, you know, able to bring in vast amounts of grain that could then be fed to the animals, you know, which, by the way, makes them sick. And us. And us. And us, indeed. Well, exactly. And that's a whole other uh, side of the story. You know, politicians stepped away. They just say, oh, thank goodness we don't have to worry about feeding people anymore. The only time since then that politicians have really stepped in and fed us is during war. And it's always deeply, deeply unpopular. I'm sure you've heard the stories about, you know, the war loaf and how everybody hated it. Clearly, nobody likes rationing. But actually, the deep irony is that the British population got infinitely more healthier during the war. I mean, arguably, we've never been healthier before or since, because you know, actually, somebody was, you know, the nanny state was was feeding us. So that's really ironic. But, you know, in terms of your question, what do we do now? I mean, politicians are terrified of food, absolutely terrified of it, because for all the reasons I've just listed, A, they know they can't control it. As you rightly say, global food companies often have bigger annual profits than national GDPs. They know that they they rely, and it's a bit like, you know, Boris Johnson and Dominic Cummings. You know, Boris Johnson can't sack Dominic Cummings because Dominic Cummings actually runs the show. He actually is the prime minister. He's just unelected. It's exactly the same with, you know, supermarkets and big food companies, politicians don't feed us, supermarkets do. Monsanto does, Tesco does, Nestle does, you know, all of these people. They can't admit that openly. You know, no politician can say, oh, I can't do anything about food. And in fact, they're in bed with these people anyway. So, I mean, it's a sort of, it's a revolving door. You know, people leave government and go straight into the food industry, earn a huge salary and then go back in government and so on. So, yes, we have a massive problem. Okay, two ways around this. One is democratise the food system at a, at a sort of local level. This is already happening again under COVID. This is really interesting. So, as you probably know, you know, a vast number of small producers have you know overnight lost their normal market because of course you know they normally supply restaurants and so on. All of those are shut down. Literally in the space of you know one or two days, they'd set up new supply chains. They would set up websites. And I mean, pretty much everyone I know is now buying, you know, in a way they've never done before, buying directly from, oh, there's a marvellous little fishmonger in, you know, Devon that kind of catches stuff and it's up up with you by tea time sort of thing. And yeah, it's really extraordinary. So that is what I call disaster democracy. So that, you know, and, and basically it can happen at a formal level or an informal level, but, you know, reconnecting producers and consumers directly obviously cuts out, the middleman who normally screws screws down you know, the producers to the minimum for a profit, which is what supermarkets do. That's thing one. Thing two is, you know, I think if we're going to come out of this and try to rebuild our lives in a greener way, so lots of people are talking about this, COVID could be the last big chance that we have of, of rethinking everything from the ground up, and it, we'll never have as good an opportunity as this again, so we've just got to do it, and food is obviously a big part of that is that we need to get political about the food system. I mean, it's really critical right now in the UK, for example, because as I'm sure you know, Liz Truss is off doing deals with America. I mean, we do not want American food here. I mean, I'm sure you know enough. We'll just look at the average American to know why we don't want their food system here. So we have to fight for this right now. And, you know, what's really interesting is that I think people are waking up to the dangers of food being controlled by faceless corporations, you can't see. And yes, the, the empty supermarket Charles is part of that. But also, they're starting to get the pleasure of food sovereignty back, which is that you grow your own, you make your own, and so on. And from that awareness comes an awareness that our politicians cannot be allowed to not regulate the food system. You know, so they keep, I mean, the existing government, for example, keeps saying, oh, of course, we're not going to lower standards in the UK. Of course, you know, it'll be, you know, but they, re- if you remember, you know, last week, there was this big vote on the agriculture bill, they refused to write into law that they would protect standards. So when politicians refuse to write something into law, that normally means they intend to do the exact opposite.
0: Yeah, it's leaving the back door open.
1: Exactly. So it's a critical moment we're in now. But we have to let our politicians know that it is not acceptable to us that they basically abandon our food production systems to the market in the lowest common denominator, which is called chlorinated chicken in popular t- parlance. And it's a lot of other things we don't want either.
0: So who is the voice? Who is the loudest voice uh, out there who can represent these views?
1: I mean, I try to be a voice. I mean, I, I, I wrote this book. Presi- I mean, okay. Why did I write this book? I mean, I'm not a food journalist. <laughs> I'm an architect who, in a way, discovered almost by accident the power of food. Um, and I'm trying to get inside people's heads with this book. You know, genuinely, I'm trying to show them that food is the most powerful tool that we have to act, you know, think and act collectively, ask all the big questions in a way that doesn't kind of, you know, melt our brains because there's something beautifully practical and real about food. We all eat you can't opt out of thinking about food actually and that's a great beauty that it has and i'm trying to offer it to people as a tool for thinking and acting and i really really fervently hope that some some people with power read it you know and i, I that's why i'm talking to you by the way i mean you know frankly i'm not going to ever make my fortune out of selling you know 5000 more copies of, of of a book i mean as you know there's no money in publishing at all i am doing this because i genuinely believe food is the best chance we've got of a sort of collective, you know, to revalue food is the um, the best chance we've got of, you know, a, a collective, easily understood, easy to sort of get people on board, revolutionary tool, I would say, for creating a green, happy, egalitarian future. Because you cannot have uh, that kind of society with the food system we've got at the moment. They're just totally incompatible.
0: I just wondered, whilst your whilst your book is 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 brilliant conceptually, theoretically, and and practically to a large degree as well, who is driving this forward from a lobbying point of view from government? Because you you're an author, you're an architect, you can't do this on your own. sim. you, you need some force. There needs force behind what you're doing.
1: Yes. I mean, there are people like Tim Lang, who interestingly has just brought a book out literally the month after mine, which is called Feeding Britain, you know, which again has sort of just fallen in the middle of the COVID crisis. And, you know, he's been kind of everywhere talking about that book. He he has worked closely with government for many, many years. He actually set up, was responsible for setting up the Food Standards Agency the trouble is you know you get so far with politicians and then the government the changes trouble. and it just all yeah. it just all disappears again i mean all i can say is you know there's this famous thing of you know there's a forest fire and you're a hummingbird you know what do you do do you, and you know the hummingbird just picks up a little bit of a little bit of water and tries to put it on the fire of course it's not going to put the fire out itself but you know everybody does their bit I'm a writer now. I mean, I'm I'm an architect who writes, (laughs) or I'm a writer who thinks like an architect, and who's discovered the power of food. So I try to do my best to articulate how it is possible through food to to think, imagine a better world, and then also build it. But I'm not a lobbyist. And, you know, would supermarkets listen to me? I don't know. I mean, funnily enough, I work with governments all over Europe. I mean, I I've, I've, last week I got the first phone phone call from anyone in government in the UK of my life after 20 years of working in this territory. I've worked with the Dutch government, the Swedish, the Belgian, the French. You know, I've I've been all over Europe, so so that's interesting.
0: What was the question? What do they want or ask of you?
1: Well, it was somebody from the ministry, the Ministry of uh, Housing and Communities. And she'd read my book. And she said she's actually responsible for urban development in the UK. So this is quite a big responsibility. Um, I think she said, I can't remember how many billions she said she's got to spend, but it was in the tens. And she'd read Zootopia. And she said it was the first time that anybody had made her think that the land value tax could be a good idea. So the land value tax, which is one of the things I talk about in the book, and I do talk about land reform, the need for land reform, because my question, again, as an architect is, how do we flourish as political animals? You know, as a political animal to flourish, as I said earlier, you need access to the city and the landscape. This is then a design proposition. Um, And by the way, what I say in the book is that you know a, a sort of conceptual idea of how to do this is what I call maximizing the urban-rural interface. This means basically bringing city or you know city and country or if you like society and nature together um, as as much as possible at every scale. So that the key thing is at every scale. So that could be joining a city to its region. It could be growing spaces and allotments in a housing estate. It could be, you know, growing herbs on your window box in your kitchen. You know, it's all of those things because all of those things bring those two things that we need to flourish together. But that is a planning issue. That's a political issue. That's an economic issue. Um, And it absolutely requires that we uh, basically have some form of wealth tax that opens up access to land. I mean, interestingly, again, Covid might be helping with this because, you know, if half the restaurants in the country go bust, then uh, inner city landlords have got a problem. Uh, and they probably can't keep on charging these ludicrous rents that have been pushing restaurants to the edge anyway. So again, yet another thing that COVID could be actually helping us with. But you know, what I found, again, in my travels was actually through looking at the Garden City and Ebenezer Howard's writing. I mean, two of Ebenezer Howard's, um, I I mean, for people who don't know the Garden City, well, I think everybody's heard of Garden Cities, probably, but what they May not know is that it's actually a very, very radical revolutionary proposition. It's not cute little suburban cottagey places with roses around the door. It's actually a proposition for incremental land reform in which, again, you know, you build new urban centres in the countryside of limited size and these become sort of semi uh, self sufficient, sort of almost self governing city states in effect. So, you know, bringing back the Aristotelian platonic model again of the self-sufficient city his two key influences and this is so interesting to me one was an economist called henry george and henry george was the one who first proposed the land value tax and the idea is basically that we all own land together and that nobody has a right a sole right to land but of course we might need to use land for our lifetimes exclusively in, in order to live you know have a house or have a farm or whatever fine but you know for that privilege, then we should be paying a rent to the community. You know, it's a very, very simple idea. It really just takes the community charge and ramps it up to an actual realistic value, actually. But of course, what that does is it sort of reduces the relative value of land and thereby making it more accessible to people. So that's the idea one. Idea two was Peter Kropotkin, who's actually you know sort of, and are you are you sitting down comfortably? Is an anarchist, um, and I, I have to say, you know, I never thought I'd be propounding anarchism. And before anyone sort of rushes to the radio and switches it off, I should all them. Nobody's listening on radio anymore. <laughs> that shows you how <laughs> old I am. Um, nobody sort of you know pulls their iPhone the, the away the from trendy. their ear as if it's burning. <laughs> <laughs> These sort of um, just heat up the old valves and get the old, yes, um, while wow, it's going. Um, basically, anarchism's got, you know, it's one of those um, ideas or sort of streams of thought that has been so misrepresented as to almost represent the opposite of what it actually is now. At its Base. it is, I mean, anarchy just means without leaders. It's again from the Greek. And what it means is radical democracy, effectively, where you have you know, as much power as possible vested locally and people basically self-organised to the greatest extent possible. Um, and I think the time for this, I mean, funnily enough, I was listening to this morning to a story about, you know, the the mayor of Froome in Somerset, who's kind of basically democratised, you know, the local council and taken all the silly gold chains and stuff away and actually just made it for the people. You know, so I think, you know, ideas like this are coming, uh, or their time has come, I should say, But what's really interesting about Kropotkin is that he talked about bringing the factory to the field. You know, so the idea is that rather than have enormous urban clumps called London and Manchester, and then, you know, random countryside where no one, there's no jobs and no opportunities, you actually take the work out to the countryside. And yet again, what's really interesting about COVID is that, I mean, and you've probably seen the news reports as well, people already starting you know, there has been a huge surge of interest in living in the countryside from people so you know these things are really good the, the ideas are, their time has come you know i mean what i find i think a lot of people are really enjoying about lockdown is that they can be live a bit more like an anarchist so one of Kropotkin's big ideas was he was very against the division of labor which is the basis of capitalism as we know where everybody only does one thing and they do it more and more efficiently until they become a machine, basically, you know, this bad work model. He said, no, we need a society based on, you know, evolving economies and systems where every individual has the opportunity to live as rounded and as interesting a life as possible. So again, it's an opposite idea. So, you know, basically, you might grow potatoes in the morning and make furniture in the afternoon. Now, this is what's known as working from home, actually. You know, but it's not working from home as we've known it. It's actually designing communities where, you know, there might be a workshop, it might be a communal workshop, you might have, you know, growing space. That, that, you know, basically there is the possibility of leading, as I said at the beginning, a productive life as well as a, a consuming one. And I think this is has to be the basis of a, you know, zero carbon regenerative green future it has to be because it's where the lone hanging fruit is you go you give people the opportunity of doing all the things that make them happy that don't cross the earth
0: wow
1: (laughs) (laughs) you can see why this book took 10 years to write yeah
0: (laughs) so we've we've virtually come full circle and we've nearly done an hour which i mean we just go on for hours and hours it's such a huge complex topic it just embraces everything about one's life and systems and politics. Yes. And yeah. and as you say, the question is, do we value food? Do we value life? And I think we think we do. But when we sit down and actually study it in the way you, where you just, you know, analyse it there, we, we probably don't. And it's only when something, some, the shit hits the fan, like COVID and you think working from home, making a nice meal, going out for a lovely walk in the countryside, mental health and well-being – you know, not watching Netflix around the clock, these things, and you start to realize what life should be about, what it really is.
1: But, you know, when you've been sort of on, um, I mean, I had lockdown for eight years before lockdown because it's called writing a book. But, um, so, <laughs> you know, if you're talking to somebody nice and they ask you interesting questions, you tend to talk a lot. But, um,
0: no, no, I mean, you're basically, the
1: <laughs> I, I well, well, thank you. But, uh, thank you for inviting me. But, um, you know, I often point people to page 162 in the book. Well, oddly, (laughs) oddly,
0: I'm just um, flicking to it now. Write
1: about how we are better in a crisis. And, you know, the irony of that, you know, and of course, it was pre COVID, I was writing about the fact that we were living in a crisis. It was just a slow crisis.
0: Here we are. Crisis, in short, gives us the chance to readjust our values, which is why our failure to change course over the 2008 crash may turn out to be the greatest missed opportunity of the century, which is what you were just saying. This in theory covid could be the the next the only present opportunity we will ever get again because the next one might <laughs> if we don't die from obesity if we don't get this one the next the next crisis might wipe us out completely I
1: and mean, this is a weird thing to say but this is almost the ideal opportunity it's almost it like be. it's been designed by some deus ex machina because you know here we are you know we we've been given back the one thing that we never had in the previous life which is time, you know, and and in fact, the last chapter of Sotopa is called Time, as you know. And I mean, yes, another irony, or not for me, and the kind of weird, oh, this is just so bizarre. I've been talking about all of this. I really think that many of our ills were to do with the fact that we never had time to stop and think, and we never had time to just be in the moment. And again, Buddhists talk about this, and we have... Western traditions that are very like Buddhism. So Stoicism talks about this, um, and Epicureanism, which I've, I've resurrected as a form of Stoicism, talks about this. Basically, you know, a, g- a good life is all about getting pleasure from being in the here and now, and this is precisely this thing of watching watching your chive plants grow and baking bread. You know, it sounds so ludicrous and middle class, but uh, you know, I'm afraid. The only reason we think that is because nobody else has ever had the chance to get the pleasure out of having time. And so if we can construct a world where having time is seen as a human right, then I I really think we can sort of, we can learn to be happy with less, which is the whole, it's the philosopher's stone of where we've got to get to.
0: Yeah, those those Stoics were remarkably uh, prescient in their thinking. I mean, was it Marcus? Was it the um, Memento Mori they they lived their their life by? You never know. You never know when you're going to leave life. It could be right now. So make make the most of it. This is your one and only opportunity.
1: Exactly. And I mean, you you know, I, again, I think yet another weird COVID revelation for many of us is that you know, basically, by accepting that you might die quite soon which all of us might, um, and not, you know, pre-COVID, that was also true every time you got in the car, you know, then you live every day as if it's your last, and then you really learn to enjoy life. And, you know, uh, and and that is the best lesson. I mean, I think the Stoics, totally genius, again, totally misrepresented because they, as you say, they are the carpe diem guys. They're they're the party people. It's like, get out there and live now because you know how long it's going to last.
0: I'm a huge fan of the Stoics and big, big up to Ryan Holiday um, for uh, bringing that, uh, con- making that contemporary. Love love his work. I think on that, that happy note, <laughs> you <laughs> could live life right now, make the most of it. <laughs> Indeed.
1: It's probably, time,
0: it's probably time to go and make a meal, a nice fresh meal from your chives and your whatever you're growing on your, your balcony. <laughs> what are you, what, what you going to have for dinner tonight? Yes,
1: I think it's going to be Malin la Parmigiana tonight. <laughs> so that means in, in English that means grinning loads of aubergines
0: <laughs> well that sounds lovely and, and if uh, I could I'll, be, I'll yeah. be right around there like a shot <laughs> <laughs> socially distancing of course
1: <laughs> of course indeed well I look forward to that the next time we can actually eat round a table again and talk well that, 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 great that would be
0: absolutely lovely and charming and thank you so much once again for your valuable time because I know you've been busy since the uh because this book's not been out long has it it's uh a couple of months yeah it came out the same year
1: so the 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 week that the global pandemic was declared (laughs) great (laughs) which felt like you know the curse of the gods at the time but actually has worked out weirdly well because people are very very receptive to big ideas now so i
0: mean is it it going well is it selling well
1: oh um, they never tell you that and i mean you know even if it does go well i still won't sell as many books as Hilary mantel does in about five seconds so let's not let's not even go there
0: no okay <laughs> all right all right carol everyone, it's been it's been lovely lovely to have you on the podcast again and fingers crossed uh, we'll get through this in one piece your ideas will take seed, if I can put it that way, um, and will will grow from little acorns into to big oak trees.
1: Uh, <laughs> you see, yeah, you, see yeah, yeah. you see
0: what I'm doing here. You yeah, see what I'm yeah, doing? yeah I,
1: know, I know. And it's so easy to do. This is why food is such a beautiful medium. Yeah. It just, it, it is life. As I say. No, well, thank you very much for having me, and uh, it's been a great pleasure. And um, yeah, I really do hope that people take the idea of food and, and run with it because it's it is really powerful.
0: Thank you very much. I absolutely love creating your London Legacy for you, and the feedback and testimonials are awesome, but as it grows, so it consumes more and more resources. So I've joined forces with Patreon, a really cool place where you can show your love and support from just as little as $2 a month as a silver Londoner, right up to $300 per month where you get the crown jewels. Each level of subscription opens up a host of exclusive extra goodies, events, bonus shows and sponsorship opportunities only available via, via Patreon. I do hope you'll continue to support what we're doing here. and I'm so grateful for whatever you feel able to give. So please head over to www.patreon.com forward slash your London legacy. That's www.patreon.com forward slash your London legacy.